today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. You yourself are the strongest testimony and proclamation of the truth of what the gospel is all about. If you're on the receiving end of the good news, you've not only experienced forgiveness and and salvation in your life, but you yourself, you're an influence in certain people's lives that no evangelist, no pastor, no teacher could ever be. Because they're your friends, they're your family members, they're your co-workers, they're your neighbors. They're the ones that see you all the time. They see you day in and day out. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus have a story to tell. In today's message, Pastor David encourages believers to recognize the power of proclaiming their personal testimony. The Lord's grace and sustaining power in even our darkest times becomes a witness to the world in desperate need of God. Our privilege and responsibility is to simply tell others about what Jesus has done in our lives. As we're faithful to share, others will be drawn to have the same life-saving and sustaining relationship with Jesus that we so enjoy. Now here's Pastor David with part two of today's message, Prophesied Grace, from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. God love you. But God's message is clear. Actually, in Old Testament and in New Testament, His everlasting gospel, the book of Revelations tells us, must be preached to all those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, and every people. It's not just Jewish. It's for the world. The message is to the world. God's heart is wide. His plan all along was to send forth a root from the stem of Jesse, a branch from the house of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And the Gentiles will rejoice with his people. In him, the Gentiles will find hope. All of that's Old Testament. But that was God's plan all along. That Israel was to, yes, as his chosen nation, but they were called to be a light among the Gentiles. Not to be closed off from it all. All of these things the prophets declared, and yet they didn't know when this was to come about. Today, so often we hear men speak about that the Old Testament, well, the Old Testament is is a book of law and, and, and judgment. And the New Testament, though, that's the book of grace and mercy. The problem is, is you're going to find in the Old Testament an abundance of God's mercy. It's grace all throughout it. Let's see, do you think Israel ever failed in what they were supposed to be doing? All the time. And it was God's grace. They weren't able to keep the law. It was God's grace. It was God's mercy. We can go all the way back to the garden, can't we? Adam and Eve fell. God said, okay, wipe that out. Let's start again. 
They said he covered their sin. He took care of their sin, didn't he? So you see God's grace and God's mercy is also Old Testament. But you know what? In the New Testament, there's an abundance of places where we see God's judgment and God's wrath also. So you see, all of those things need to work continually. It's not just at one time God worked in judgment and wrath and now he works in grace and mercy. No, the holiness and the righteousness of God remains the same. Old Testament and New Testament. The grace and the mercy of God remains the same. Old Testament and New Testament. The prophets were given this message. But they also understood it wasn't for their time. They were proclaimers of the message of God's future fulfillment. Look at, look at verse 12 with me if you would. To them, to the prophets, it was revealed. It was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So in the past, it was through the prophets of old. But now, to today's gospel message comes through those that God has appointed to proclaim that gospel message. Today, the message comes to us through those who preach or teach or declare the gospel to us. And it comes to us in a variety of forms. Do you remember that in the New Testament uh, the, who the first evangelists were? In the New Testament, they, their, their message was, we bring you good tidings of great joy. It was angels, wasn't it? Those were the first evangelists meeting there on the hillside with those shepherds just outside of Bethlehem. Oh, and they said, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be to who? All people. It's a wide open invitation that God has. That's good news, beloved. Especially if you're a Gentile and you're not a Jew. It's good news. That very word, good tidings of great joy, the word good tidings, it's the Greek word, euangelizo. Euangelizo. I had to practice that multiple times to be able to have that just flow off my tongue like that. What it means is good news. We also translate it as gospel. And we also get our word evangel from all of that. We evangelize through the sharing of the good news of faith in Jesus Christ. We're among churches of, of many denominations who are evangelical. We proclaim the good news. We believe that it's important to share the truth and the fact of the hope that's found through Jesus Christ, our only hope of salvation, and we proclaim that. But it wasn't just the angelic proclamation. You know what? Jesus himself proclaims the truth and the good news. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at various times in diverse or various ways, he spoke to us in times past by, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. And he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. 
Early on, uh, as a young couple, Todd and I were in a Bible study, and I can remember to this day the uh, teacher of that little home Bible study. His name was Ray, and we were going through this passage, and he brought something that has always stuck with me. He says that the syntax of this verse here and the way the sentence is formed together brings out the idea and the thought that God is now speaking to us actually in the language of the Son. He's speaking to us in that language. Some of you here can speak Spanish, your Spanish heritage and uh, background. You speak it very fluently. I know like about this much of it. I don't speak the language. No, no habla, okay? I, I don't, uh, I don't understand it very well. But those who know it can speak together and they understand it. it speaks from the heart that way. In the same way, when we come to Christ, we learn the language of the Son. And we can communicate with him. He communicates with us. We can fully understand because he speaks to our heart. We can then speak and we can respond to him in that way. So together we have the angels that declared the message. We have the the, the son himself, the testimony of Jesus' life, his words, his actions. But we also have the writings of the apostles. Clearly, the, the, the gospel writings that we have before us, these first four books in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of those, they are the clearest record of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and they are the most direct proclamation of the gospel that we have. And some would say that, wow, there's, there's too many differences in the Gospels. There's too many conflicting stories. The, the time frames don't always match up. And one Gospel writer has these events happening during this time in Jesus' life. Another Gospel has the events happening in this life. There's just too many things that just don't match up. And some would even discount the very words of Jesus. And they say that most of the words in our Bibles that we say these are the words of Jesus, they attribute them to changes that were that were put in by, by the imagination either of the writers or by those who translated the Scriptures. The problem with those kind of statements is that they're made out of either, one, ignorance, they're simply mimicking and, and parroting uh, uh, a, a words that they had, had spoken to them. Or it's a determined attack against the truth of the message. But you know what? It doesn't take too much investigation for us to see the veracity or the, or the truthful reliability of the scriptures. It really doesn't take too much to look at that. A lot of studies have been made on, on the subject, both secular studies as well as religious studies. But the fact is we have more proof of the validity of the New Testament writings than we have of the writings of men like Plato or Caesar or Aristotle or even Homer. When we look at these things, we look at the writings of Plato. Plato was written around 427 to 347 B.C., okay, about 350 to 427 years before Christ. The earliest copy we have of the writings of Plato are dated 900 A.D. He wrote 350 B.C., the earliest copies we have, 900 A.D., that's a 1200 year variance. 
And we only have about seven copies of that. We look at a multitude of other writers, ancient writers. You look just at Caesar himself. Caesar wrote from 100 AD or BC to 44 BC. So about 44 years before Christ to about 100 years before Christ. The earliest copies of his writings that we have from the original writings of Caesar, the earliest copies that we, because we don't have the originals, okay? We do not have the originals, but the earliest copies we have are dated at 900 AD, 900 AD. And even there, now we're talking a thousand years difference. We look at Aristotle. Aristotle wrote 384 to 322 BC. The earliest copies we have for him are at 1100 AD. 1,400 years of difference. We get to a guy like uh, uh, Homer who wrote the Iliad. Everybody's pretty certain that Homer wrote the Iliad. No, no real question about that. Homer wrote the Iliad in 900 B.C., 900 years before Christ. The earliest copies we have actually are dated back to 400 B.C. So relatively close in proximity, about 500 years. And we have about 643 of those copies. So they're 95% certain that the, of the accuracy of it. But let's look at the New Testament. All right, all right. The New Testament was written from about 50 A.D. to no later than 100 A.D. So about a 50-year time span there of the writings. The closest copies we have of the original writings date at 130 A.D. Love that's less than 100 years, and in some cases around 30 or 40 years difference. And we have a few of those copies, those early, early copies of the original manuscripts. We have a few of them, like 5,600 plus of them. The veracity, the reliability, the dependence of the Scripture. We can depend upon its truth. A truly honest skeptic, it would have to agree with the validity of the scripture. If you're just really and truly being honest, it's got to be accurate. It has to be what they wrote. Matthew Slick, who is uh, the uh, author and uh, writer for the uh, CARM, the Christian Apologetic uh, Resource Ministry, uh, CARM.org, he writes this, Almost all biblical scholars agree that the New Testament documents were all written before the close of the first century. If Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D., then that means that the entire New Testament was completed within 70 years. This is important because it means that there were plenty of people around when the New Testament documents were penned who could have contested the works. In other words, those who wrote the documents knew that if they were inaccurate, plenty of people would have pointed it out. But we have absolutely no ancient documents contemporary with the first century that contest the New Testament texts. So in other words, those of that time, they weren't saying, hey, I know this writing is going around, but it's a bunch of garbage. We live there. We saw what happened. It's not true. They're making this up. No one in the first century, it was only late, late after that, they began attacking the truth of God's word. So now we actually have the gospel being proclaimed to us through angelic 
beings. We have it through the life, the ministry, and the words of Jesus himself. We have it through the writings of the apostles. But let me ask you this. Who else preaches the gospel? Who else are the important bearers of the good news? You might think, well, the preachers and evangelists of today. And certainly, to, to some extent, they do. That, that's what we are called to do, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But I'm thinking on a much broader scale than that. And you might think, well, then you must be talking about like television evangelists and radio preachers. And, well, some of them actually do preach the gospel, okay? Some of them actually do. But that's not who I'm speaking of either. I'm still thinking much, much bigger, much greater, wider span of influence. And I think of somebody with greater influence in the lives of people. Think about that individual you looked at in the mirror this morning. You yourself, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a recipient of Almighty God's grace and mercy. You yourself are the strongest testimony and proclamation of the truth of what the gospel is all about. If you're on the receiving end of the good news, you've not only experienced forgiveness and and salvation in your life, but you, yourself, you're an influence in certain people's lives that no evangelist, no pastor, no teacher could ever be. Because they're your friends. They're your family members. They're your co-workers. They're your neighbors. They're the ones that see you all the time. They see you day in and day out. There's people in your life that I believe that God has placed there in order that you and I together, we might be the very light in the midst of the darkness that they live. There are people in your life and in my life that can't believe what's going on in our lives. And so they're watching us. And we need to be that living testimony of the truth of the gospel before them. So in the words of that modern-day philosopher, Dr. Phil, how's that going for you? How is that light that you're shining? You remember the little nursery school, little Sunday school song we used to sing? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. And the, un- the unfortunate reality is, is too many believers. That's about how big the light is. When we really and truly in this world, we need to be a bonfire. We need, we need to be displaying the reality of the truth of the light of the gospel in our life so distinctly and so brightly that the world will look at us and say, you don't respond the way everyone else responds. You don't talk the way everyone else talks. You don't do the same things that everyone else does. There is a hope in you. The word says that we're to be salt on the earth, and I love that idea. What does salt do? Well, people say, well, well, salt preserves. I like the idea that salt makes you thirsty. And we ought to be the salt in the world that that the world looks at us and interacts with us, and they become thirsty for the things of the gospel. And we ought to have the answer whenever people ask us a reason 
for the hope that's within us. That's our responsibility. If you call Christ as your Savior, it is your responsibility not to have the pastor's cell phone so that you can call him up. Hey, I've got a hot one for you here. You know, uh, no, you, you as a believer need to have the answer for the hope that's within you so that those neighbors, those family members, those coworkers, those friends that interact with you and suddenly they realize, man, there's just something different about you. You yourselves are preachers and proclaimers of that good news. We look at these things, we see that the angels, they, they're amazed by all this also. The, 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 the very last portion of verse 12 there says, things which angels desired to look into. You know, the angels are blown away when they look at you and I. They, they look at you and I and they say, you mean you saved him? You, you mean that, that she, with all of her failings and all the times that she's blown it, you saved her knowing that this was going to happen? I believe that the angels were just absolutely amazed that God himself would take upon himself human flesh and come down and dwell among us. The angels are blown away by that. Because you know what? Angels don't understand grace. They do not understand grace because it's never been a portion of their existence. But for you and I, outside of grace, there's no way that we could come before the Lord. And it's the work of grace in our life that the angels desire to look into. When you and I, through the actions and through the words of our life, Proclaim words like those that were written by Isaac Watts back in 1707. Angels have no way of comprehending it. When you and I, through our lives, declare, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All those vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing and so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You and I can understand that because we know from whence we cometh. We know the greatness of God's mercy toward us. That's the gospel message that we need to be able to proclaim. That's the hope of the lost and dying world that's around us. That's what the prophets, boy, they sought, they, they looked, they desired to see. That's what the angels can't comprehend. But you and I see it. We need to proclaim it.
Standing strong in the midst of persecution is a theme throughout the New Testament. Many of the newly created churches faced opposition from the world around them and were in danger of turning away from their faith due to these confrontations. It isn't a surprise that the book of 1 Peter also addresses this subject. Peter wanted to encourage new believers and remind them of the truth they had learned, that Jesus lived and died for the salvation of every person on earth. Sadly, persecution didn't die out through the ages. The enemy is still doing his best to derail the message of the gospel. Today, we want you to be encouraged as well. As a follower of Jesus, you will face persecution sooner or later. Stand firm in your faith, leaning on Jesus' truth for your source of strength and comfort. One way you can find support and encouragement in any season of your life is by getting involved in a local church. With that in mind, Pastor David has an invitation for you. Well, I hope that today's message has encouraged you in your faith. It's given you a hunger to learn more about God. If you're in the Casa Grande area, you're looking for a church to attend, I'd be honored to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. You can find directions and service times by visiting theopenword.com and following the links to our church homepage. We welcome you to be a part of our time of worshiping our Savior and studying the words of the Bible verse by verse, growing closer to Him each week. Thanks, Pastor David, and thank you for tuning in today to The Open Word.